In our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew, we are in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 30 uh, this morning. And we need new plumbing in this building. There we go. (laughs) All right. Starting in verse... Oh, I'm sorry. Steward's up. He has Bible in his hand. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And Stuart will get one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. All right. Starting in verse 20, Matthew chapter 11, we read, Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The title of my message this morning is Resting in God's Plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, we thank you for your word and how your Holy Spirit Lord, we thank you for speaking to our hearts through your word. And pray, Lord, that we would have open ears to receive what you have to say to us individually, Lord, to us as a church. Father, we pray if there's anyone here that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, they're not born again. We pray, Lord, especially that you touch their heart today, they would see their need for you, and they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. So, Father, we commit our time to you now. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story about two friends. They rented a boat and they fished in the lake every single day. And one day, they happened to catch 30 fish. And one guy said to his friend, Mark the spot so that we can come back here again tomorrow. Well, the next day, driving to rent the boat again, the same guy asked his friend, Did you mark that spot? His friend replied, Yeah, I put a big X on the bottom of the boat. Well, the first one said, well, that's not going to do us any good. What if we don't get the same boat? All right, this is a better one. One more. Give me me a minute here. The story about four women who were driving across the country. Each one was from a different state, Idaho, Nebraska, Missouri, and California. Shortly after the trip, the woman from Idaho started pulling potatoes out of her bag and throwing them out the window. Now, what in the world are you doing, demanded the girl from Nebraska. He says, we have so many of these things in Idaho, I'm just sick of looking at them. Well, a moment later, the gal from Nebraska began pulling ears of corn from her bag and tossing them from the window. What are you doing that for, the gal from Idaho asked. She said, well, we have so many of these in, in Nebraska, I'm just sick of looking at them. Inspired, the gal from Missouri opened the car door and pushed the Californian out. 
<laughs> See, I can say that because I'm from California, okay? You know, I, <laughs> Listen, in life, we need wisdom, we need understanding, we need to learn the lessons of life, we need to learn how to get where we're going, but we also need to know that God has got a plan, and God has got a purpose for each one of our lives, and we need to rest in that. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you're taking notes, we're going to look at three things. Number one, First of all, God's judgment is fair. Number two, God's plan is perfect. Number three, God's offer is for everyone. And we'll see that that offer is for rest. But first of all, let's look at uh, number one, God's judgment is fair. Maybe you've heard this question asked you. If God is so loving, then why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? Or this one. Why did God allow this to happen? Whatever this might be. How did he allow the chiefs to lose? I I just don't understand that. (laughs) But you see, as believers, we have on the authority of Scripture, we're given to every man an answer according to the hope that lies within us. That's what we are supposed to do. But I think sometimes as believers, we're kind of guilty of just kind of throwing pat answers out there to the unbelievers that, that, that are really asking a fair question, a question that really demands an answer, a response. So when God's fairness is, is questioned on why He is so loving and, 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 and so fair, and why would He allow suffering and evil to continue in this world, well, the best answer that I can give them is, your question is wrong. See, I, I cannot give a right biblical answer to a wrong question, because the question should be, If God is so loving, why does he allow bad things to happen? Uh, Rather, it shouldn't be. If God is so loving, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? It should be. If God is so loving, why does he allow good things to happen to bad people? Because the Bible tells us that none of us are good. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one, the Bible declares. So to ask, if God is so loving, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? That's not even biblical, because there's no good people. We're all bad. None of us are good. None of you guys are good. Neither am I good. And God bless you guys. See you next Sunday. No, that's that's not it. But you see, this goes all the way back to the garden. There in the the garden, and Satan came to Eve, uh, testing her, said, Hey, has God really said you shouldn't eat of this tree? I mean, if God were so loving... If God really loves you, then, then why is he holding out on you? I mean, because he knows, he knows as soon as you eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, you'll, you'll have no need of God. In fact, you yourself will be like God. So Satan says, he's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart, Eve. And the same thing happens today. The question is distorted. It's twisted. Listen, God is good. God is fair. God is just. God cannot do evil. God cannot tempt us to do evil. God cannot lie. God cannot be bad. God can only be good because God is good and God's judgment is fair. And that's what we're going to look at next about how God's judgment is is fair. Look at verse 20 through 22. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment 
than for you. Now here in chapter 11, Jesus has been talking with John's disciples. John had sent his disciples out. John was in prison and, and John was wondering, are, are you the one that we should be looking for or is there another? And, and we, we talked about how they had doubts. And Jesus really dispelled all of their doubts by telling John's disciples to go back and tell John, verse 5 and 6 here, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor of the gospel preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Well, now here in verse 20, Jesus brings up these cities that were offended because of him. These cities that, seeing these great works, still rejected him. And he talks about Tyre and Sidon that were Gentile cities that uh, had been judged. But he also he says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Now this woe isn't like, you know, you're on a horse and you want to slow him down. You go, whoa, horse. It's not like that. You know, it's not, whoa, dude, cool. No, this is a, a woe. I mean, this is a woe kind of woe. It's a, it's a condemning kind of word. Oh, how terrible for you. Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Well, why the woe? Well, again, in a few weeks when we get to chapter 15 of Matthew, Jesus is going to visit Tyre and Sidon, and he's going to minister and do works there, and, and they're going to be without an excuse. And, and Tyre and Sidon really had not been exposed uh, to Jesus and his miracles and his ministry as much as the towns here of Chorazin and Bethsaida. It's like this. I think we've all heard of the Bermuda Triangle. You know, planes disappeared. It's an area in the Caribbean Sea where strange phenomena and mysterious activity takes place. Some people believe the triangle is a hotbed for demonic activity. It's a site of the supernatural. But there's another triangle of real estate known for the supernatural. No area on earth has seen more miracles per square mile than the area on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between the town of Corazon and the two fishing villages, Capernaum and Bethsaida. Five miles by three miles by four miles. That area has been known as or called the Evangelical Triangle. And between 28 and 32 AD, here's what people in that triangle witness. Five loaves of bread and two little fish multiplied into a feast for 5,000 families. Blind men receiving their sight, the lame walking, they experienced a man walking on top of the water, the same man calming a violent storm with just a word of rebuke. And then think about all the miracles that were, were done in Capernaum alone. Jairus' daughter was healed, the nobleman's son was healed, the centurion's servant was heard, the demoniac was healed, the man with the withered hand in the synagogue was healed, the man who was a paralytic who, who got lowered down through the roof of the house was healed. And... And Peter's mother-in-law was healed. You can't get any more supernatural than your mother-in-law being healed. Okay? It's amazing. (laughs) Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. The entire township, the whole surrounding area, she said, whoa, and come to faith in Christ. But they didn't. They didn't repent. And so Jesus says, look at verse 23 and 24. And you Capernaum who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's an amazing statement. Because the people listening to this, they knew about the land of Sodom. I mean, it would probably top the list of the most wicked cities that they knew of. And, and it probably tops our list as well. I mean, it was a wicked city. It was one of five cities in Genesis known as the cities of the plain. It was known for its unusual 
lust and wickedness. It was also known for its pride. It was known for its uh, oppression to the poor. What, what can be worse than that? Jesus says worse, what's worse than that is one who hears the truth and rejects it. A person who, who hears the truth of the gospel and says, I don't want to investigate this any further. I don't want to think of that stuff anymore. So I'm just going to reject it flat out. What says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom in that day? More tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, than for the city of Capernaum. Now notice something here. God judges cities as well as individuals. God not only holds people accountable, but he recognizes corporate identities. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus judges seven churches. In Isaiah 13, all the way to, to chapter 24, he judges nations. Here, he judges cities. It's my belief that in this modern age, he's also going to judge corporations, endowments, political parties, lobbying groups, labor unions, those that pass laws in our land. Jesus is saying that the punishment and the judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah is not going to be as severe as it's going to be for you because they are not as accountable as you are. Because they never saw the mighty works that you saw. Listen, we are judged according to the light that has been shown to us. And because they were not as accountable, their punishment is going to be more tolerable. We have to understand something about this. And that is that biblically there, there will be different levels of punishment. There will be different degrees in hell. In other words, the grandma who never quite saw it, never quite got it, never quite received Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, was never born again, she's not going to experience the same hell as Adolf Hitler is going to experience. You know, she will not be beaten with as many stripes as Scripture declares. So we are judged according to that which we've been shown to us, that which we have seen, the amount of light that we've seen. And, and, and we say, well, I've seen the light. Well, Jesus Christ is the light. But woe to you if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the light, you've seen his mighty works, and you still have not repented. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says, because they never saw, they never witnessed his works. In fact, Jesus says in verse 23, if Sodom would have seen the light, if they would have seen the mighty works that he had done, then they would still be here today. So the severity of the judgment of these three cities, the tri-cities are going to be worse because of the fact that they had seen more mighty works. Now all of this makes me think of our own country. A nation founded on Christian principles, a nation that has seen the light, a nation that has walked in the light and now seems to be walking in darkness. When I think of this last Tuesday, when New York passed the so-called Reproductive Health Act on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, signed into law by Governor Cuomo just hours after the New York State Senate passed it, this bill gives medical providers complete legal cover to kill, and that's exactly you know what it is authority to kill fully formed, fully viable, third trimester human babies, even up to the time of birth. Simply put, this Reproductive Health Act is an abomination. What I think is more of an abomination is the cheering and the clapping and the rejoicing over this bill when it was passed. The lights on the Empire State Building being changed to pink in honor of this new law that's being passed. Listen, even if a choice had to be made between the life of a mother and the life of a, of a child, that should be met with sorrow and grief and, and, and mourning, not with cheering and rejoicing and colored lights. Rejoicing because you now can kill the life of a child right up to the time of he or she's be born and, and you're not going to go to jail for it. I mean, that's what they were rejoicing. I mean, 
when you think about it, this is late-term abortion that they're giving permission for. And, and uh, what exactly is late-term abortion? I know many of us don't want to hear this. I don't like hearing it. I don't like talking about it. But I think it's very important that we know what passing this bill means and what this is all about. And here's how a late-term abortion, this is the kind of abortion that just has been legalized in New York. It's carried out. It's explained by a former abortionist. If I can get through it without... Okay. The baby's injected with a poison directly into his skull or torso. He then suffers a hideously painful death with which he certainly feels because of the developed nervous system. The mother carries the corpse around in her room for a day. The next day there is an ultrasound to check if the baby is dead. If he isn't, if he has been writhing and suffering in pain again for the past 24 hours, clinging unto life, then he will be injected again. The following day the mother then delivers her dead child. That's a late-term abortion. Here's the problem. We know better. We know better. We as a country know better. We, as in the case of these cities that Jesus condemned, Know better. We know that a baby is human life that needs our protection. Dr. William Lyle, he's a board-certified obstetrics and, and gynecologist. He's a licensed to, to practice medicine in Florida and Alabama, and, and he practices in Pensacola, Florida. Dr. Lyle has been in private practice for almost 20 years, delivered almost 4,000 babies, and he says this, and I quote, this is, this is cool. We can now truly treat the preborn as patients while in the womb. He says, our imaging technology has changed with ultrasounds and MRIs, which is amazing what we can see. But now we're able to treat the babies, the patients that they are while they're in the womb. They can now do a blood transfusion directly to the baby now as early as 19 weeks gestation. Centers around the country are now doing heart surgeries on the babies as early as 22 weeks gestation. Heart valve surgery and atrial septal interventions are being performed on fetal hearts the size of a large grape. Texas Children's Hospital in Houston is now performing laparoscopic corrective spina bifida surgery before 23 weeks gestation. He says if they are a patient, they are a person, and if they are a person, then they deserve our protection. That's amazing. It's no wonder God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nation. God knew each one of us. Before he's formed us in, the, in our mother's womb, why we're there. We know that they are valuable human beings. So why anyone would want to authorize a horrific crime like this, there, there, there must be consequences. And I believe God will hold these men and women responsible for their votes the same as he will hold those who commit such crimes crimes responsible. I don't know if any born-again Christian can look around this world today and, 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 and not see that we are quickly approaching the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. If God would judge these cities, if God would judge Sodom and Gomorrah, surely God's judgment is coming to New York and any other state, any other country that allows such hideous crime. Folks, I believe the time is short. Jesus is not going to let this go on and on. There's going to have to come a time of accountability, or as the saying goes, there's going to come a time to pay the piper. Judgment is coming. Now, to give us a better understanding concerning the judgment that is to come, turn with me over a few books in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Starting in verse 42.
says in verse 42 through verse 48, the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his master will make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and begins to to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed these things deserving the stripes, shall be beaten with few. Why again? Because he did not know. So the judgment will not be as severe. Verse 48. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. I want to draw our attention to one thing here in verse 45. The wicked servant says, My master is delaying his coming. Now, Matthew 24, we'll get to that probably in a few months. Matthew records the same account of Jesus speaking and giving this parable, and he contrasts the two servants. One, the good servant is is watching and and ready and waiting, doing the work, pleasing the Lord, and the other is a wicked servant who is cast out into the place where there's, there's gnashing of teeth. Hell. Now let me say this. Jesus never sends anybody to hell. If anybody goes to hell, it's because they go to hell over Jesus' dead body, literally. Jesus died so that no one would go to hell. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance and all should come to the knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. God is a God of second chances. And we know that He holds in His hands the day of our death. So I believe He prolongs those days to give men multiple opportunities to either accept Him or reject Him. Now, why is that? Well, because God takes no delight in the judgment of the wicked. God doesn't delight in that. Ezekiel chapter 33, 11 tells us, God says, As surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. Turn, turn from your wickedness. But notice what we see here in, in, in Luke. It says, that My master delays his coming. They're the ones who say, No, come on. Jesus isn't going to come back. You know, my grandmother used to tell me that years ago. And you guys, you know, you're just, you know, religious freaks. You know, I'm going to keep doing my own thing, living how I want to live. I don't believe that stuff. Jesus says that he's going to come in an hour and that servant does not expect. Because when he does come, that servant is found living that radical life, beating his fellow servants, rowdy, drunk, partying, doing his own thing, passing laws, legalizing murder. Watch out. Watch out. Because to the unbeliever, the Bible says, a judgment will come as a thief in the night. Listen, God wants us living every moment with the realization that He can return at any moment. The realization that that we can be taking our last breath here on earth and our first breath in heaven at any given moment. And that's the point. We know God's plan. We know it. So we should be living for eternity. We should be living with the thought that Jesus could return at any moment. In fact, that's what John reiterates in 1 John 3, 3. And everyone that has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And we need to get serious about our relationship with God. Get serious about how we're living. Get serious about the things that we do in this life. Because if we truly believe that the rapture can happen in any moment, then I'm going to think twice about the things that I'm doing. If I know that the rapture can happen in any time, then I'm thinking twice about a lot of things. I'm thinking twice about my investment portfolio. 
I mean, what good does it do to have a lot of equity down here and all of a sudden the trumpet sounds and you're going, wait a second, well, not yet. I'm getting a good yield on my money right now and I got a good interest rate and because I've laid up treasures here on earth and that, that, that's where your heart's going to be. I mean, Jesus talks about that in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying, put your investments in heaven. Because then you're, you're going to want to go home to heaven and cash in on those investments. But if your investments are here down on this earth, then, then you're not going to want to go home. You're not going to want to cash in. It was C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He puts it this way. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escape, escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this aim at heaven and you will, and you will get earth thrown in. Oh, they become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And I see that. Just because the Lord is going to turn, come at any moment, we have to still do the work that God's called us to do. And, and, and if we are heavenly minded, then we're going to be loosening our grip on this world and the things in this world because we realize at any moment our master can come and we want our master to find us doing what he's called to do, making a difference. When the Lord comes to his church, I, I want to be ready. I don't want to be caught off guard. I don't want to, you know, be surprised. I've shared this before. Many of you know the story years ago after I first got saved and, and Pastor Greg Laurie did a study on, on the rapture of the church and it was like the following Monday and my wife and I just heard the time and I at the time and, and uh, you know, I'd walked out for a minute and I'd come back into the bedroom and her, my wife's in a wheelchair. Her wheelchair's sitting there and she's nowhere to be found. And I'm going, I've been, she's been raptured. I've been left behind. Oh no. And I started to freak out because I'm thinking, the wheelchair's there. Where, where could she go? I mean, she's gone, you know. And, and I hear this snicker and she's hiding underneath the little dresser in the, in the, in the bedroom. And she got behind it to, to play a trick on me. Listen, I don't want that to happen. I don't, I don't want to be surprised. I want to be ready. I want to be waiting with oil in my lamp as the peril of the ten virgins say, dressed and ready to go at any time so that when I hear that trumpet sound, I'm out of here. Our home as a Christian is not here. It's eternal in the heavens and that is where our heart should be. Again, it's sad because there are people who say, oh, you know, my master, he delays his coming. They're not living in the light of eternity. And back to our point here in Matthew 11, they're going to be judged according to what, uh, accordingly to, to that which he saw. Jesus is talking about accountability for their unbelief. Listen, in the same way, when you share the gospel of somebody they now become accountable. They are now going to be judged accordingly. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ and you continue to reject His free offer of forgiveness, His offer of salvation, when you die, you cannot say, I never heard. No one told me. 
God will say, roll him, Gabriel, and he's going to bring out that projection screen, and you'll see January 27, 2019, that, that funny-looking guy springing from Missouri, Calvary Chapel, you know, you rejected Jesus Christ. And you'll be judged accordingly. Do you, do you realize that for a person to go to hell, all the person has to do is nothing. Now people say, well, that guy's pretty bad. Look at, look at the bad things he's done. He, he's probably going to go to you-know-where. Actually, you don't need to do anything. You can just not do something. When the truth is presented to you and you don't have the right response, whether you marginalize it, denounce it, reject it, the more you have it presented to you, the more you know, the more responsible you are with that knowledge too. Much is given, much shall be required. So Jesus is saying, woe to these cities. They saw enough of his works and the power of God that was more than enough to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Thousands of people heard and saw the mighty deeds. That that was enough. It should have been enough to convince them and and have them respond rightly to his ministry and to his message, but they didn't. You know, where the light shines the brightest, people have the greatest responsibility. And again, there's going to be degrees of judgment according to the amount of light a person had, and, and it's a serious thing to know the truth and turn from it. That's why now Jesus begins his prayer. Look at verse 25. He says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Now, this can be a difficult passage to to understand. Jesus isn't saying, hey, this is great. Thank you, Father, that they aren't a part of our little club, that they didn't get salvation. Thank you that you hid them from them. That's not what this is saying. We know God's plan for for our lives is that none would perish, but all should come to repentance. We know the Bible teaches that all those who would seek him would find him, that, that, that uh, he that was lost could be found. But to those who would not seek, to those who would not find, Jesus is thanking the Father that their punishment is not going to be as severe as it could be had they even had more understanding and then rejected it. Far worse, again, because they would have more accountability. Again, to whom much is given, much is required. It works both ways. Now, if the Bible teaches that we should be laying for ourselves treasures in heaven, does that mean that if the sinner that is not saved, that is not born again, does that, does that mean that he's storing up penalties and punishments and blows in hell? I believe that absolutely. You know, I know there's going to be different levels in heaven, you know, different rewards in heaven, different ones of us will have more treasures than someone else, though we'll never look at someone else and say, no fair, they got more than me because that would be sin and there's no sin in heaven. But you see, the point is that everyone will be recompensed according to that which they've done. You'll be compensated, rewarded, and proportionate to that what you did on this earth. Now think about this. If we could get a snapshot into heaven, if we could get a glimpse of these, these treasures, these rewards that we could lay up in heaven, what an impact that would have on our lives right here and now. I mean, if God could give us just a brief five minutes of video of, of coming attractions, here's what's coming for you. Here's what's waiting for you. Here are the treasures that, that can be laid up for you. I know it's a bad illustration, but, but look at it this way. When you go to those video arcades and you play the games and you get all those tickets, they start coming out, you know, and, and then you go to the ticket counter and it's like, you know, stuffed animal, 2,300 tickets. You know, piece of candy, 500 tickets. Uh, Xbox, 5 million tickets. You look at, oh, man. I gotta have that. And you go back and you put more money in, you play the games and you get those tickets. If we could see the treasures we can have stored for us up in heaven by the things that we do here on this earth, I'm convinced we would be blown away. And we would want to be investing more and more in eternity with the things we're doing here on this earth. 
Now again, in the same way on the other side, how would our lives be impacted if we could get a glimpse of hell? How would that affect us in sharing the gospel? I just wonder if we knew the judgment, we knew the punishment, the blows that await the non-believer and the rewards that await the believer, I wonder how that would impact our lives. I think it would change us dramatically. That we would become so incredibly heavenly minded that we would be very, very earthly good. Making changes. Seeing things happen. So number one, God's judgment is fair. Number two, God's plan is perfect. Look again at verse 25. On into verse 26, Jesus prays, Father, thank you that you've revealed this truth to these babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. See, the religious scholars, the the Pharisees, they're they're not responding. Jesus says, but you, Father, thank you for those that that these babes in Christ, they've responded. I I think about this, you know, the, the faith of new believers. I think about when my kids were young. You know, kids, they take as parents so literal, so literal. I remember saying, don't make a face like that or your face is always going to stay like that. And they freaked out. Oh, no, no, my face like that. Kids, easy to believe what they say because as a child we have such simple faith. But the great thing about God is God doesn't try to pull our leg. He doesn't lie. I mean, if God said, hey, Tom, if you keep making that face, it's going to stay that way. Guess what? My face would stay that way. Maybe that's what happened. I, I don't know. But, but, but it's just, just a simple faith. Given to us by God's grace. That's God's plan. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 27. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus willed to reveal to each one of us the Father. How do you know the Father? Only way through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's impossible to know God apart from Jesus. The door to God the Father opens only after you come to Jesus and embrace Him as your Lord and as your Savior. Listen, folks, our God, God the Father, is so immense. Think about this. Our Milky Way galaxy, 100 million light years long, 10 million light years wide. If you could travel at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, it would take you 100 million years to get across the length of the Milky Way galaxy. Yet the Bible says in Isaiah 48 that the Lord spans the universe, not just that galaxy, the universe between his thumb and his little finger. That's big. That's enormous. How do we know? How can we know such a vast and huge God? Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. God's plan is ingenious. This huge, vast God became a man so that we might know him and love him and serve him. But the problem is our sin stood in the way. Sin stood in the way of a relationship with Him. So the same God died on the cross at Calvary to provide atonement for our sins. Then He rose again to to live inside us by His Holy Spirit. It's a perfect plan. There's not a flaw in it. So God's judgment is fair, number two. God's plan is perfect. Finally, number three, God's offer is for everyone. Now look at verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden 
is light. I mean, what a contrast we see between judgment and mercy. Over the dark background of rejection stands the light of Christ's love. In this very conversation where Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon judgment on these cities for, for their rejection, Jesus' heart just bursts open with the most beautiful and touching messages of love that you can ever read. This wonderful invitation, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice who it's to. Come to me, all who have their act together. Come to me, those that, that have money or power. No, come to me, all you who labor. So really, this is not an invitation to lazy people. It's to those who are, are working hard. And as Christians, we should be the hardest workers that there are. In fact, Second Thessalonians 3.11, we're told, Paul tells us, settle down and get to work and earn your own living. He tells us in Galatians 6.9, don't grow weary of doing good. So it's not a, a lazy person. Rather, it's to a weary person. It's, it, it's really, uh, it carries with the idea of someone who is at the point of utter exhaustion. You're not only exhausted, but you're, you're heavy laden. You're loaded down with weight. That word laden means to be loaded down with, with burdens. And I think sooner or later in all of our lives that happens in our lives, we come to this place, maybe the trial is just, just, just heavy and, and more than we can bear, and we become loaded down with burdens. Now, partly I think that's due to the times in which we're living in. I mean, we work all year long. We save money for that vacation. You know, we can go out into the, to the woods and we can set up that tent and we can, you know, go by a stream and we can fish all day and we could, you know, uh, cook our food on an open fire. The kids can swim whenever they want. You know, 150 years ago, that was the way of life. I mean, so really, how much have we gained? That's how pe- people live in the primitive cultures today. I mean, think about some remote tribe, you know, in some jungle somewhere it would be pretty hard for a psychiatrist to make a living there. Those, those tribal people don't know what manic depressive is. They don't know what job-related stress is. For that matter, they don't know what a car is. They don't know what 8 to 5 is. They don't you know about rent or mortgages or banks or interests. So I think we do put a lot of pressure on ourselves just in the times in which we're living in. But I think in our present society, it's only a matter of time until a person is forced to, to reach out for someone stronger or wiser for help. I think that's a, a critical person in, a moment in a person's life because what you reach for can either make you or break you. And many, when they're overcome with burdens and they're laden with everything, that, you know, they, they turn to the bottle, they turn towards, towards some, some material thing and, and, and instead of turning to the one that loves you and it can help you. Here Jesus is saying what you need to find is, is a father who loves you very much and wants to help you. Come to me, all you who labor and have related, and I will give you rest. Is that a description of you today? Maybe you've come in, you know, carried some sort of burden. Maybe it's a burden of sin that you've been struggling with. Maybe it's a burden of some physical pain. Or the burden of some problem in your family. Or the burden of grief. Come to me, Jesus says. Not even come to my teachings, though that includes that. Come to me, those that are laboring. Come to me, those that are heavy laden. Come to me, and I will give you rest. That word for rest means to be refreshed, revived. What kind of rest is that? Well, for starters, it's a kind of a rest that comes with the assurance of your salvation, to know that you're saved, to know that your sins have been forgiven. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you should never doubt the fact that, that, that you're going to heaven. Bible says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we need to rest in that finished work that Christ accomplished on the cross. 
He went to the cross for us, shed his blood for everything that we have committed, and that through Christ, God's righteous demands have been met. So we can rest, rest in the finished work of the cross. That's huge. So why sweat the small stuff? You know, the big stuff has been taken care of. Yeah, as Christians, we're going to have problems, and we're going to have challenges and trials, but man, you're saved. You're going to heaven. Rejoice. How else can we find rest? Well, look now at verse 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a yoke is not just the center of an egg. That's just a little yoke. Um, I think we know the yoke was a wooden harness they put on the oxen so they could, they could pull the plow and they would yoke the, the two ox together. I find it interesting that um, the word for carpenter in Matthew chapter 13 that's used there to describe Joseph and the work that he used, it's a word for a finished carpenter, not, not a framer. According to one commentator, tradition has it that the carpenter shop where Jesus worked with his father, the, Joseph, they specialized in making yokes. And a sign over the door was a sign that the words, the best fitting yokes made here. I don't know where they found this, but, but it's interesting. But here Jesus is saying, I have a work for you to do. I want to take the reins of your life. Now this is sanctification, learning each day all about the one who died for us, yoked together with Jesus Christ. I want to take the reins of your life. I want to direct you. you know, Billy Joel used to sing, I don't care what you say anymore, this is my life, go ahead with your own life, leave me alone. I think we've all sung that at one time or another, but praise God, we're, we're, we're not there now. But, but people that sing that, you know, oh, my life, you know, it's my life and I, I'll lead it the way I want it. But, but my life and my way can often lead to a life of misery and pain. Every man bears a burden. The burden is how to please himself. Everyone, everything he does is seeking to find satisfaction in life. And we watch it and it breaks our heart as they pursue wealth and pleasure and possessions and those things become yokes around their necks. It becomes a heavy burden. That's why Jesus said, let me take the reins of your life. Let me take that yoke and beware my yoke. My yoke is easy. My yoke is light. Take my yoke and learn of me, verse 29. Learn from him. Without a doubt, Jesus Christ has had the greatest influence upon our culture than any other person in history. You know, we've just celebrated the coming new year, 2019. 2019 what? 2019 years since Jesus came into this world. He's the central point of history. We divide our history into B.C. and A.D. before Christ and the year of our Lord, or Anno Domino. It's amazing to me how people really, people really know so little about Jesus and, and what they do know. Most of that is from Jesus' enemies. How can we know the truth about Jesus? He says it right here. Learn of me. Read of me. Study the Gospels. Read God's Word. Go to Bible studies, men's studies, women's studies, Wednesday midweek studies. Listen to podcasts of studies. Take in as much as you can. So many people make the decision about Christ based on some program they saw on the History Channel. Get all the facts from God's Word. I mean, the Bible, then, then make your determination. I promise you, the more you learn of Him, the more you will be convinced, as Peter was convinced, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Because the more you, you, you know Him, the more you're going to love Him. And the more you love Him, the more you're, you're going to want to live for Him. And the more you learn of His grace and His endless mercy. And the more you realize Jesus' words in John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for His friends. You'll discover Jesus laid down His life for you. 
Come to me, yoke with me, learn of me, and the result you'll find rest for your souls. The very first thing that Jesus has promised you is to come to him, rest for your souls. When you first come to Christ, finally submit to him. Man, the first thing that happens, man, I got this peace. Heavy load is gone. I'm resting. I like Psalm 16, verse 7 through 9. It says, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night sessions. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest and hope. I want to close with this. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Lord of me first or take my yoke upon you first. No, the first thing that Jesus says is, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say, hey, make those changes in your life first, then come to me. No, he just says, come to me. Modern society would tell us something different. It would say, well, if you can just get that promotion, if you just get that new house, or if you just can get that vacation, then you're going to find rest. Oh, materialism, you know, would say, build it up and you'll find rest. Pleasure mania, man, man, live it up and you're going to find rest. Religion, right? man, would say, keep it up and you're going to find rest. Jesus says, hey, just come to me and you'll find rest. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Folks, in this world, we know it, we see it. It's going to hell in a handbasket, as the saying goes. We know by the signs of the times, Jesus is coming soon. And we can look around and, and, and take it all in and be frustrated. And we can be stressed. Or we can just look to Jesus and be at rest. I'm reminded of the statement of Corrie Boom when she said, Look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me control your life. Let me be the one who directs and steers you from place to place. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Jesus is willing to take that burden that you're carrying. Just take it. I mean, you just got to give it to him. Cast your burdens upon him. Cast your cares upon him, the Bible says, because he cares for you. You know, we started this study in chapter 11 with doubt. John the Baptist had doubts. This week we end with peace and rest. And if you don't have peace and rest, could it be that you don't know the Prince of Peace, the one that's calling you to come in to Jesus Christ? If that's your desire, as soon as service is over, there's going to be the elders up front who would love to pray with you and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ if you want to give your life to the Lord. But the elders are also going to be up here to pray for you. If you want to pray, pray for, for just prayer for the things that are going on in your life. To pray for you, to, to cast those burdens to the Lord. Give it to the Lord. Let go of it. Knowing that God is in control. God has a plan and it's a good plan. And we just need to trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for these, these heavy words, Lord, the, the words of judgment, Lord. But we see also your plan and the love that you have for us. And Lord, we see the invitation, Lord, to come to you, to find rest, to find hope. And I pray, Lord God, if there's anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, they don't have that peace in their life, they have no rest, and it's because they, they haven't repented of their sins, they've not turned to you. I pray, Lord, that they would not wait another moment that they would surrender their heart and life to you this morning. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to know that your sin is forgiven, that you're going to go to heaven? You want to be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? God loves you, cares for you.
died for you upon the cross. Maybe you want to recommit your life to Jesus Christ after hearing these things and hearing what, what's been going on and, and, and the accountability to what we know and you realize I've not been walking with the Lord. I've been doing my own thing. I've been living for my own life. And, and, and uh, Lord, I, I think I'd be surprised if you would come back today. I want to be ready. I want to recommit my life to you this morning. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? God bless you and you. Anybody else? Want to re- recommit your life to Jesus? God bless you over in the corner. Anybody else? Just want to give you that time. Father, we thank you for those that have raised their hands, Lord. And as we've studied, Lord, all we got to do is come before you, cast our cares, our burdens upon you, Lord. And we do that right now, Lord. We cast whatever burden's been weighing us down right now, we give it to you. And for those that have raised their hands, Lord, their desire to recommit, rededicate their lives to you, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you'd give them that rest, that rejuvenation, Lord, that, that, uh, uh, that life, Lord, as they start to serve you and, and are more committed than they were before to, to, to our relationship with you. Lord, that's our prayer for all of us, that we leave here this place more committed, more in love, more willing and wanting to serve you because of all that you've done for us. Help us as your church to make a difference in this nation before we go. We do pray for our nation. We pray for these, these people that have made these laws that they would repent. We would repent as, as your word says, Lord, and turn from our wicked ways and, and turn from our sin. Lord, we know that your word says that you will heal our land. That's our prayer. We pray for a healing in our land, that you will hold off judgment, Lord. We pray for revival in our land. We know, Lord, that you can do it. Lord, it starts with us and our hearts being right with you. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. Father, I want to lift up my pastor Dennis to you, Lord. I, as I know, he's, a, he's going to be having open heart surgery. He's been out here many times and, and shared with us here. And I pray, we pray, Lord, that you'd heal him, that you'd touch his body and, and, and just bring about a, a, a healing in his, his body so that the doctors we wouldn't even have to do a surgery, Lord. But if you choose to use the doctors, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, give them wisdom, guide their hands, Lord. And just thank you for him. And just pray, Father, for, uh, for my trip out there to see him, Lord. Pray your blessing on that. And just pray your blessing upon uh, um, the folks here uh, this morning, Lord. As they go their way this week, Lord, you fill them with your spirit. Encourage them and bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand. And we-